Hey, my name is Josh. It's so good to be with you as we're here in the fall season. I don't know if you guys like it. I brought out my fall fit today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. At the, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Boots and shirt, right? You know, just fast. Huh? Is it Fun Fact Friday? Fun Fact Fridays? Yeah. Just my phone is definitely in my back pocket. I feel like it's the only place to put it. In so it's in my left back pocket. Yeah. I think it goes in the left front pocket too. So, because I don't understand why why this is so confusing to people. But anyways, moving right along, we're in a series in the book of Luke. It's called Hope. We've been traveling through the gospel with Luke, the gospel writer. Luke wrote Luke and Acts um, in our Bibles. And so it's kind of funny as we get to see the first half of the journey, and then we see the second half of the journey after Jesus has ascended, and the disciples and the Holy Spirit take over in the Acts narrative. But here in the Luke narrative, what we're seeing is Jesus travel through, and in the, the portion that we're in right now, Luke calls the teaching narratives. These are, are different teachings that Jesus would give. Luke has now categorized them. He's given them to us in, in little chunks so that we can follow along with what Jesus was teaching to his disciples. The, not only the 12 that were there with him, but also the 72 that were there traveling with him, but then also like the crowds that would travel around to listen to Jesus teach. And tonight, we're going to get a chance to see what Jesus would say about something that I feel is very important. Mm. I'm going to leave you with that cliffhanger, because first, before we get into the text, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter, let's say, 18. Um, yeah, 18 is good. Uh, but before we read from the text, I have, uh, I'm going to draw back in your memories here, and we're going to play a sound and see if you remember this. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> it just keeps going. You guys should be running right now, by the way. Uh, okay, that's enough of the fitness scram pacer test. We can, we can be done with that now. So I, I actually, uh, I played this sound. What is the name of chalk? I played this sound today. Yeah, I know. It's now all over me. It's, it's okay. I played this sound today in my living room, okay? And my son, Levi, whom I love, came running, okay? He jumped over the couch, which is a no-no in the Moran household right now, okay? We're stay off the back of the couch. It's one of the house rules. Um, and so he, come, he jumps over the couch, looks at me, and says, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Levi lives for fitness week. Okay, like physical fitness tests at school. It is like his absolutely favorite week of school. Okay, he gets to do the push-ups, the pull-ups, the sit-ups. He gets to do the, the, the pacer test. Now, the pacer test is, is confusing to me because I like it got invented after I was in school. And so like it is a thing that all of you all did, but I have never done. Um, so I just assume that I could probably get up to... A hundred, uh, but see, like I don't even—I don't even know what I just communicated to you. I have no idea. Um, 
But Levi loves this. And I want you guys to think back to when you were in elementary school, when you were in middle school, when you were in high school. Okay? And uh, it was fitness week. Okay? Now, there are two categories of people that I want you to think about. <laughs> the, 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 the first category of person is the one that always asked you what you got so that they could then tell you what they got. Right? <laughs> The one that held you up in the pacer test. You wanted to move on to something else, but they were continuing, right? But not in just that they were continuing, but they wanted you to know that they were continuing. You know what I mean? Like, hey, guys, I'm still going. Still got it, right? Um, and then the other group of people, these are the people that they showed up, and you watched them do pull-ups, and you're like, I didn't know that they could do one pull-up, let alone 25. Oh, my gosh. Cody Pressgraves in my school, like, didn't say a word, right, for three, four weeks at a time. But then all of a sudden, his pull-ups, and the, the kid just never stopped. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Or the ones that you, like, they, like all of a sudden, they're, like, doing the sit-ups, and they're going down the row, and they're, like, naming off how many sit-ups did you do, and they're, like, 135. You're like, what? It was only 60 seconds. <laughs> and when you compare those two types of people, right, the one that were, like, super excited, a little bit too excited, a little bit proud, maybe, to the people that were a little sneaky good, which one did you like better? Don't say it out loud. Just hold it in your heart for later. Next, I want to draw your mind back to one more thing. Does the name Lee Cameron mean anything to you? No. Obviously not. <laughs> Why would it? Is he a boxer? Uh, he is not a boxer. <laughs> Lee Cameron was the only person to beat me. In... <laughs> <laughs> around the world multiplication tables. Okay, I was that kid, okay? Like, I just like, I don't know why, but memorizing math facts was just really easy, specifically when it came to just numbers, okay? We start throwing letters in there, that's not math. I don't care what people say, okay? Algebra, just shove it. <laughs> I'm not supposed to say that. Um, <laughs> So anyways, where we're playing around the world, we would always play, and whenever we play around the world, everyone would boo, okay? Like, boo, we don't want to play around the world multiplication facts because Josh is too good at it, and we really don't like him. Okay, so I never got to go first, right? Somebody else would always go. They would get to my table. I would dominate them, right? And then I would go all the way around until Miss Ravenscroft was done doing multiplication tables, okay? Whenever my test got turned in, I always turned it in first, and I always got every single one of them right because it's just memorization, right? Okay, I was like that kid, and I would always like, like you know how sometimes you finish first and you like wait because you're like, I don't want to be done yet? That was not, not the MO. I was like, I'm going to race all of you, and I hope to finish before you get to the second line. Okay, I was just a jerk, right? You know, I was only eight, nine, whatever. I was just like that kid, okay? So... We're in, uh, we're playing around the world, right? They got to my table, I won, I'm moving around. And I, I, I don't remember, I don't remember what the fact was. I don't remember what the flashcard was, like, right? But Lee Cameron, I still remember, I haven't, talking, I haven't talked to the guy in probably 25 years, right? But I can still, like, this, I have this memory vividly because he beat me and the whole class erupted. Like, they, they all jumped up out of their seats and cheered for him, right? And so it was... <laughs> Well, I deserved it, right? Like, I, I was just a little bit too proud, okay? And, it, like, I came off as a jerk. And you know what? It's like, it's like one thing we're talking about, like, physical fitness tests, like the presidential award. I could never get it because I just couldn't do pull-ups, right? And I'm like, 
why do I want to do a pull-up? Like, I'm just here. I'd rather just stay down here. I don't want to go up there. Um, like, you know, presidential fitness or pacer tests or whatever, or maybe multiplication facts and like that. You know, that those are things and, you know, there's ways that we should act. And But what happens, like, when that, like, sense of pride, like, not only flows, like, into our academic career or our physical fitness, but then it also, like, comes into our walk with Jesus. The sense of pride then, like, flows into all other aspects of our life. What, what would Jesus say? What did Jesus say about that? And you know what? I'm so glad you asked because that's what we're going to talk about tonight in Luke chapter 18, which I think you've all already turned to. This is Luke chapter 4. I'm going to go to the black one. This is Luke chapter 18. Whew, man, uh, just, I'm still, I still, I can still picture Lee. And for today, I picture him wearing a flannel, probably because I'm wearing a flannel. I don't know. I don't even know what season it was. <laughs> Gosh, if only I could have been undefeated. Hmm, the good old days. Like, why is he still talking about that? Like, it just defined my life for a period of my life that it should not have. So, anyways. Yeah, <laughs> 20, it's been more than 25 years. I don't remember the last time. Like, <laughs> it has been a very long time, but it is still there. So, <laughs> anyways, we're going to start reading in verse 9. You know, you see you had the NIV subheading there. If you're reading out of the NIV, it says the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So verse 9, Jesus says, well, Luke here, uh, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. We'll just pause right there. Jesus, Luke just comes out of the gate hot, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't waste any time. Like as he gets into this story, like for those who were confident in their own righteousness, who looked down on everyone else, to those who were like Josh Moran when he was doing multiplication tables, for those who thought that they had it all figured out. For those who relied on their own self-sufficiency. For those who thought that their self-sufficiency, like, like they were sufficient enough, that they were the ones that had figured it out, that they were the ones that mattered, and that they had figured everything out. To those people, Jesus writes this. And before we continue, I have a definition of what being self-sufficient means. I got this from the internet, so it must be true. Um, he was like, huh, is he serious? He is. Uh, to be self-sufficient is to not need anyone's help in satisfying our own basic needs. The dictionary would then continue to say the opposite of self-sufficient is dependence. Those are going to be important things as we talk tonight. So let's continue in our text. Verse 10. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, before we continue, we're just going to evidently just take this one verse at a time, it seems like. Okay, so let's, uh, I think it's often helpful as we're reading the text when we come upon like people or characters to stop, identify them. This is the observation portion of scripture, like as we read it, not just to like get through it as quickly as possible, like Taryn in her new book. Um, Taryn's going to read like a thousand pages today, I think. Um, 500. 500, which is... All right, we didn't need the last part, but that's okay. Um, and so, like, well, and so let's identify the characters, right? And so, what here we have? We have two people are headed up to the temple to pray. 
This would have been common in the ancient Near East, common for the Jewish people in Jesus' day. They would have gone to the temple. This is where the name of God lived, right? This is where the ark is. This is where God's glory dwells. Like this is, this is where it all goes down. This is a very important piece. Like this, this is the place to be. Okay, and the two people we have are the Pharisees and the tax collector. Okay, Pharisees, these are the really important people. And probably who you'll see later, who Jesus is uh, attaching this parable to. Uh, the Pharisees would have been those who were entrusted, those who were in charge of making sure that everything was right in regards to the Jewish traditions. They would have been the ones that would have been over the Jewish law. They would have been helping to write uh, different the things to help Jews understand the law. They, they were... Uh, they were the ones that had everything figured out. They were the ones who were in absolute control, who looked right on the outside, who had all of these things figured out. And in many ways, I often, though I wish I related to a disciple, I often relate to a Pharisee um, because I often in my own life think that I have everything figured out. Think that I can get by on my own self-sufficiency. Think that I can get myself there. Think that I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps and do it within my own power. And in many ways, the Pharisees were these type of people. Contrasted with the tax collector, who we're going to read a little bit about. The tax collector, a little bit easier for us to identify, because how many of you are like, you know, you've started on your college career, you're going through a couple semesters of college, and you're like, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I really want to work for the IRS. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I, have, like, I have literally not heard that. Somebody has to do it. Like, I believe that people get jobs with the IRS, just, just nobody ever says it out loud, right? If you're an accounting major, you're like, I'm not going to tell anybody that's what I'm going to do, like, because then they're not going to be my friends. And this would have been what the tax collector, like, what his life would have been like. But then also, there would have been other stipulations placed upon him because the Roman government, who was in control at the time, right, they would have allowed him to collect as many taxes as he wanted. And so tax collectors got rich. They got rich by taking from, you know, this is, you've seen Robin Hood, right? Um, <laughs> he was like, that's not based on the Bible. Well, I mean, maybe. Um, and so, like, there's this sense that, like, the tax collector, like, as the, the, as the story is told, as Jesus would have stood there and told the story, you have a Pharisee, a religious person who keeps the law, who observes the law, who writes on the law, who helps people understand the law. You have a tax collector who takes money from his friends, who is like a part of the IRS. And like the contrast between the two would have been very stark. It would have been felt. And as Jesus is telling these par this parable to a crowd that is gathered there, they would have been leaning in like, how is Jesus going to compare these two people? What is going to happen when they get up to the temple as they go to pray? So let's, let's see what happens. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had to read that again. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Tough list right there, right? Like, like you know, you're not really like... Uh, to not be those people is really not that great of, great of a thing, right? Like, you're not setting a very high standard for yourself. Like, God, I think that I'm not a robber or an evildoer or an adulterer or even like this tax collector. What we probably understand from the text as Jesus tells this story is that the Pharisee said it loud enough for everyone around him to hear. 
The Pharisees said it loud enough to where the people gathered around would have heard, and the tax collector would have heard also. Then the Pharisee goes on to tell you how great he is. He says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. Isn't it fascinating that the Pharisee here shows up and prays out loud, loud enough for everyone around him to hear in order for his deeds to be known, in order for his deeds to be seen or for them to be, have been understood, in order for everyone to know exactly what he was doing. And I find it fascinating that the list of people that he says that he is not like are also people whose sins are always on the outside. Right? Evildoers, we can see them by the things that they've done. Robbers, we see the things that they steal, the things that have been stolen. Um, adulterers, yeah, you can fill in that blank. <laughs> and then tax collectors, like the ones that we can see, the ones that we hand the money to, the ones that are, in some instance, stealing from us, from their very kin. And that's not a political statement, it's just a fact of what was happening, right? Um, and he, he goes out of his way to make it all about what is done on the outside in order for the things that he has done on the outside to be compared but to those things that are done on the outside. Never once taking a look at any of their hearts, obviously not a thing that he could have known, not a thing that he could have understood, right? Because we're human. We don't often know what is going on inside of other people. We don't know what type of day they've had. We don't know what type of year they had. We don't know how they got where they got. We just often just see what happens on the outside and we make judgments or we make passing statements or we make beliefs in our own mind about ourselves in comparison to them. And the Pharisee says that he fasts twice a week, which the text would have told him over and over again not to tell people when you fast, right? To just do it, and you should do it. Fasting teaches you self-control. If, you if you're having trouble with self-control in one area, I would encourage you to practice the discipline of fasting, to give up a meal or two uh, or three. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, they would often fast from sundown to sundown, so, you know, dark outside, so you wait until it's dark outside the next day to eat. Um, and as you practice self-control in that area, it will lead to self-control in other areas. And I believe that this is a great discipline. And the fact that the Pharisee is doing this is not a bad thing, but the fact that the Pharisee is thinking that this is what would give him status, this is what would make him more important, this would make him better than someone around him is where the difficulty lies. He's proud of the fact that he understands his math facts. He's excited about the fact that he can run faster than everyone else, and he wants everyone to know it. And then he says he gives a tenth of all that he gets, which, again, a great thing. And it's not to say that these things that we do for the Lord sometimes are bad things, but to say that what is the motivation behind it, and why are we doing what we do, and who do we do them for? Do we do these things in order that we may gain social status amongst our peers? Do we do these things so that we may gain social status amongst our God? Or do we do these things out of an obedient heart? So let's compare his reaction to the prayer that the tax collector prays. Again, the tax collector, presumably a rich man. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up at heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. They, they couldn't be more juxtaposed, juxtaposed, right? Not only did Jesus set them up in a sense that they were juxtaposed at the very beginning, a Pharisee and a tax collector, but then their reactions as they go to pray could not have been more juxtaposed. The Pharisee, out loud for everyone to hear, to know how great he is. The tax collector, 
not even looking up, beating his own breast, not even caring about his own surroundings, but saying, God, have mercy on me. So, excuse me, which one do you think Jesus says is better? You're correct. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Whew! That's easy. Like, you know, you hear it, you see it, you see it in these stories, and you're like, yes, absolutely, I totally agree, 100%. And then you wake up the next morning and you have to actually do something about it. Like, yes, I want to live humble before God. Yes, I want to live humble before my friends. Yes, I don't want to exalt myself because I know that I'll be humbled instead. I want to humble myself so that I can be exalted. But then how does this play out? What can this possibly look like in our lives here at JMU? What can this look like as we get out into the quote-unquote real world? What can this look like as we take exams, as we live in houses? What does this play out like? I think Jesus drives this story home with our very next story. And so we'll turn again to verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. That's great, right? Jesus is a bustling politician at this point, right? Uh, People are bringing babies to him, like, you know, touch the baby, kiss the baby, come on, Jesus, see the baby, like, like, just bringing all of them to Jesus. And we see what happens. The disciples who have just heard this story, right? Don't forget that part. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. No, no babies! (laughs) Jesus is anti-baby. Keep the babies away. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Children have nothing to offer Jesus. And that's the whole point. disciples say get them away we don't have time we've got places to be we have people to teach we have things to do there are there are more important things there are more important people there are crowds that are waiting we are waiting we need answers let get out of the way and jesus says this is why they need to come because they have nothing to offer they're desperately dependent they aren't self-sufficient by any shape by any means they aren't proud of what they have accomplished because they haven't actually accomplished anything And these are the ones that Jesus says that he likens the kingdom to. If you don't receive the kingdom like a little child, running up into Jesus' arms, running up to a father that loves you unconditionally based on nothing that you have done, you can't gain social status, you can't gain things by by listing off your accomplishments, but instead entering the kingdom like a little child. As if you have nothing to offer. And I think that when it comes to our lives that we can have kingdom values, but the place that the question becomes, where do we put our hope? In a series on hope, where do we put our hope in what we can do ourselves, or do we put our hope in the one who has already come? Do we put our hope in Jesus, or do we put our hope in ourselves? Do we say that we want to rely on ourselves, or do we say we want to rely on Jesus? Do we want to take pride in ourselves, or do we want to be humble before Jesus? Do we want to be the Pharisee, 
We're going to be the children and the tax collectors. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. But, again, I find humility such an interesting concept, but such a hard one to grasp. What does humility even mean? There are a lot of different definitions out there about humility. My favorite one comes from C.S. Lewis, right? Because I think he may be one of the best authors of all time, if not the best. If you haven't read Screwtape Letters, I would strongly recommend reading Screwtape Letters. Lewis wrote it in the 50s, but it felt like he wrote it yesterday. Um, and it's absolutely like fascinating how he's like in my head. Like I'm like, hey, how did you get there? How did you know I was thinking that? Like, stop that. Uh, but anyways, C.S. Lewis has a quote on humility. And what he says is, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It should be up on the screen. Nice. Uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So humility is not just putting yourself down. Humility is not just saying, I am worthless, there's nothing good in me, there's nothing, uh, and, and listing off all of your bad qualities. That is not humility. That is not helpful. But humility is thinking of yourself less. Making the, the thoughts, your actions, not being all about you, being, being about those around you, being about God and neighbor. I think that much of our Christian life can be boiled down to how we love God and how we love our neighbor. And so that's what we're going to talk about next as we look at some practical ways that we can see humility play out in our life. The first one is through prayer. I find prayer to be a fascinating concept, right? What is prayer other than having a conversation with God himself? And I find prayer even more fascinating because we tend to fill our lives with so many conversations, with so many things happening, and so many things going in and out and around in our day-to-day -day lives that we often forget that we have a direct line to the Godhead. We have a direct line to Yahweh. We have a direct line to Jesus that we can talk to, that we can converse to. Paul says that we should pray continuously, that we should give, give thanks in all circumstances, and that we should travel along with God in our mind, in our lives, and talk with him throughout the course of our day. And I think that your prayer life, my prayer life, that our prayer lives is one of the best ways that we can see if we are truly living humbly before God. Because if we don't have a prayer life, if we aren't asking God for things, or we aren't talking to God about how our day has gone, or what has happened, or what is coming up, then we're saying, hey, I've got this. I don't actually need your help. You're not saying that specifically, but your actions are saying it. Does that make sense? And so, like, I think uh, that, so we go prayer walking on Thursdays, and almost every time that you ask somebody randomly out on the street, can we pray for you? Nine times out of ten, maybe 99.9 .9 out of 100, because they're not the same, um, they would say, yes, you can pray for me. And then they, sometimes they have something they want to pray for, sometimes they don't. Now, I'm going to step on some toes here, right? Okay, Because then if I come to one of you all, who I know, who I love, who I trust, who it's not just randomly, right? You'll often say, I'm good. I got nothing going on. 
I can't think of anything. I wish you could see my face, right? <laughs> like, this is when it's hard to preach in a mask, right? Because you're like, oh, man, like, that ain't right. Like, why is he saying that? I just think it's just something that I've noticed, something that we've noticed, like something I've been thinking about even in my own life. You know, Dick Brogdon stood right there with me like one week ago and asked me if I had anything I needed prayer for. And I was like, mm-mm, no way. <laughs> I'm good. And that wasn't true. And I don't know if it's just like I'm trying to, to like promote my own self-sufficiency to him or that's, that's like it's like weird in the community, right? Or it's because I have this warped sense that I've got it figured out. Another thing that I do, and maybe you do this too, is I'll often pray for things that I can almost accomplish myself. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not willing to pray really big, bold prayers as if God doesn't have these things under control, as if he didn't, like, create the universe with a word or, or like, you know, figure out the human body or the eye, like, or, or gravity or any of those things, right? But I'm like, hey, you know what? <laughs> and I told him. And he said, well, at least now you have an example to share. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) Now's your moment to think. Okay, your moment to think is almost over. Sorry, I filled it with my own thoughts. Great. Next, another one to think about, not just with our friends and those around us, but I also think what the disciples happen with the children is that they are ready to get to important people, right? Again, the children have nothing to offer. They have nothing to offer Jesus. They have nothing to offer the disciples. They can't offer housing. They can't offer food. Like the disciples' trips, Jesus' trip had to be paid for by somebody. Luke will eventually tell us that women are the one that finance Jesus' trips. Um, And so, like, get these people out of the way. And I think that oftentimes, like, not only do we think about our own self-sufficiency, but we also think about our own self-sufficiency and our own relational network. And we think that we have built our own relational network as we look important to important people. And the disciples were trying to get other people out of the way in order for Jesus to be able to get to the important people. And I think that sometimes in our own lives, we push people out of the way in order for us to get to the important people. In order for us to see the people that we think matter, the people that will be able to help us out in our life, the people that are the people that everyone wants to be friends with, but look, man, all the cool kids peaked in high school. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, do you remember, like, just trying to get there? And it's like, oh, they've already peaked. But last week, we were here in this room. Katie told you that our campus pastor was here, and Dick Brogdon was here, who is, like, a hero of mine. So I have Pete and Dick, and we, like, I met them outside, walked them in, and I found myself... The only way for you to get up there is if you put other people down. That if you, if you let other people take your spot, they're going to take your spot, and so don't let them do it. The American dream is about you getting ahead of everyone else. You only win the rat race if you're in first. The only way to get to the top is to like, push other people down and make sure they're underneath of you because they can then pay for everything that you want to happen. And Jesus says there's a better way. You can still be exalted in the end of all things. You can live a life free of worry of what you've done to other people or, or free of thinking about how you've hurt other people because you can live a life that blesses other people. And the Lord says that this is actually the best way. But to live a life that is humble before him, that is humble before your brother, that is humble before your sister, is actually a better and more perfect way.
So you don't fight each other, you don't bicker, you don't complain, but instead you bless one another. And think about what our community would look like if we all just blessed one another. There was no infighting, if there was no status, if there was no sense of getting ahead, but instead it was like, yo, I'm just going to bless you. I'm going to hold the crown over your head, you're going to grow into it. I'm going to see you for everything that you can be, because when you win, I win, we all win. And then as we continue to think of ourselves less, as we put ourselves in that spot of humility, I think the cross gets that much better. And when we think of ourselves and like, you know, I can get there by myself if I just keep going, my own self-sufficiency, I can get there, I can get there, I can get there, I can get there. What we do is we make little gods out of ourselves. And we have this gap between us and Jesus, but we have raised ourselves up so high that he's actually not that great anymore. And the gap for what he's done for us is now quite small. But then instead, if we look at ourselves like the tax collector, like the little children who are totally dependent, and we put ourselves down, we think of ourselves less, we don't think about what is going on. Instead, we let Jesus take care of it. And he is high and exalted, and the, the gap between what he has done for us now gets larger and larger. Now we see the cross truly for the marvelous mystery that it is. We see the glory of the gospel for the marvelous mystery that it is because we are totally dependent on him for everything. So the band is going to come up and play in the background so that I sound spiritual. And I'm just going to give us just some moments in the house tonight just to think and process about our own lives and how we are living if we are living as self-sufficient people or if we are living as dependent people. If we are living as people who exalt themselves or we are living as people who are humble before our God and humble before our friends. And hey, if there are people in the room tonight that you feel like you need to confess to, if there are people in the room tonight that you need to apologize to with no... Um, there's a word I'm looking for, but I don't have it because I told you I was better at multiplication tables than anything else. Uh, so words sometimes escape me. With no judgment, that's the word, got it. Um, with no judgment, with no condemnation, I encourage you to do it right here, right now. To walk up to them, hug it out, and talk about it, right? And to have moments of confession before your brothers, before your sisters. If you feel like it's somebody at home, feel like it's a relative, it could be a sibling that you've been in competition with, like, we'll give you a chance to send them a text message, like, whatever it would be. If you feel like there have been times in your own prayer life where you have tried to do it yourself, or if you feel like you haven't even started a prayer life, right? That you have, or you've only been looking for what you can get out of prayer.